Blog Talk Radio. Did you know that elders and others are losing their rights to liberty and property? Anyone can petition a court to have a person deemed incapacitated. What if that person is you? The adult guardianship system was created to protect incompetent people and their assets. A court-appointed guardian, sometimes a total stranger, can force you into a nursing home and sell your home to pay for services. Treasured belongings can disappear as you are drugged and isolated from loved ones. Why does this happen? Unfortunately, the courts don't have the funding to supervise and audit cases. A guardian makes all decisions on your behalf, taking control of your assets with little accountability. The potential for abuse is frightening. Luckily, not all guardians exploit those under their care, but when they do, there's really nowhere to go for help. The National Association to Stop Guardian Abuse, NASGA, is working to reform adult guardianship to return it to its once noble purpose of protecting the human rights to life, liberty, and property and ending financial exploitation of assets. Are you or your loved ones protected? To learn more, visit StopGuardianAbuse.org. This is Marty Oakley, the PGJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. Good evening, everyone. We are so excited to be with you this Friday night. We always have Marty start our show off, and we always will. For those who don't know, our beautiful Marty did pass away um, April of this year, and it is taking many of us to fill her shoes to keep this network going. And I am very proud and humbled to be one of the people who is helping to fill her shoes. The other person helping to fill her shoes is Reverend Ralph, and we have Reverend Ralph on the line tonight. Say say good evening, Reverend Ralph. Good evening, listeners worldwide. And we are so excited that we have the exclusive interview. Live from Michigan, we have Lisa and Maurice, do you want to say a quick hello, Lisa and Maurice? Hi. Hi. We are so excited. We have so much to cover tonight. But first, we're going to hand it over to Reverend Ralph because there is so much heating up in the corrupt Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Montgomery County, Pennsylvania is so corrupt. There is a Facebook page that is also one of our sponsors called Shenanigans in the Montgomery County Facebook court, or in their courthouse. You can Google that, and you can read actual court documents and see the corruption for yourself. But, Reverend Ralph, give us the up-to-date, real-time corruption. What's going on now, if you would share your thought of the day? Good evening. I certainly would like to. Uh, first of all, I would like to get everybody to get their pens and paper out. I want to say this on every show because we do give a lot of information, and even though your, uh, the shows are uh, kept for listening to later, it's still, if you don't make the notes, then unfortunately you'll never remember to listen to those shows, and I am the biggest victim of that. If I don't write something down right away, <coughs> excuse me, if I don't write something down right away, I have notes by the bed, paper and pens all the time to remember things. Second thing, we will always say people's names and who they are if they are corrupt and if they're incompetent, whether it's lawyers, judges, whoever. But we always say if those people think we are not telling the truth about them, we want them to come on the show. That way we give them the chance to defend themselves, which is something the lawyers in the courts don't do for other people. They don't allow those people to defend themselves. Now, as far as uh, Montgomery County, 
uh, interesting week, very interesting. Uh, last, uh, last week I wasn't able to get a lot of information in about that. Uh, as far as the FBI in Fort Washington, Agent Pacioli, he closed the case and basically did not contact any of the people that had contacted him about the, uh, their experiences of dealing with the corruption in the Montgomery County courts. And he basically said it real quick. Uh, he called me up. He says, I just want to let you know we're closing the case, and then he hung up on me. So this, I've had other experiences with the FBI, none of them pleasant. And I, I just don't understand how they can call themselves a law enforcement agency <clears throat> if they don't want to know what crimes are going on. Now, as far as the district attorney's office, uh, I found out that uh, Detective Kelly, uh, and as you recall, last November I contacted Montgomery County DA's office, talked to a Detective Shade, and he closed the case down after only three weeks without returning anybody's calls. And I found out a couple of months after that he had simply retired and never gave the case to anybody else. So I contacted a Detective Kelly in the DA's office in Montgomery County, and he basically gave me a five-minute meeting before he showed me the door. So I called him up just yesterday, and I said, what's going on? You're not calling people back who have called you. And he says, well, uh, he's going to have some, there's going to be some meeting he's going to be in next week, and he'll let me know about that situation. So it's something where uh, what needs to have a meeting, the fact that this involves corruption of lawyers, judges, and basically the Montgomery County Orphans Court, I don't know why they need to have a meeting when he's known about this for several months. Now, one of the things I want to touch on is uh, when you get into this corruption of the guardianship, whether it's the beginning, middle, or end, you must know the laws. Because if you give your money to a lawyer thinking he's going to take care of everything for you, you're going to be sadly mistaken and sadly broke. Because at many times, lawyers will drop your case because they have a bigger case where they can make more money. And once they drop you, you've got to find another lawyer. And they really do not, the judges do not give you that much time to find another lawyer. So what happens is, you have to find another lawyer. He's going to demand $5,000, $10,000 as a retainer, and he's going to spend about half of that reviewing all the documents just to get up to where the case is today. So what I, what I emphasize to you, you must keep on top of your case. All the documents that your lawyer gets, tell them you want a copy of it, and you're going to have to learn the terminology that they use. Because I've experienced where lawyers just like to throw out some legal terms, and you're supposed to know what they're talking about, and you usually feel very embarrassed if you have to ask them two or three times. So by, knowing, by having those documents that you can look at, the next time you talk to your lawyer, you can ask them questions and write them down. Don't think you're going to remember them. So by knowing the documents you are able to keep more in contact or up-to-date in what's going on. And don't be surprised if things are just being dragged out just for the billing hours, and that's the key to these lawyers, billing hours, hours they can't prove they work. True, right? 
but again, yeah. they bill you for those hours. So you've got to know the laws, and you have to know the guardianship laws in your state. And this is why I've emphasized to people, start an association in your state, start a website, and start posting articles and uh, links to uh, forms and other uh, rules of the court in your state. That way you help other people and also the fact that you can build upon that. And that's why I created my website, protectmyparents.us, about two years ago. And it's grown so much because I keep finding articles and others, uh, links and so forth, for nursing homes and uh, articles about the corruption and things that have been going on. So it helps other people worldwide if they go to my website and they can see what's going on or what can be going on to them and how to maybe avoid those problems. Uh, just the other day, there was a, a new segment. The FDA approved a new drug for Alzheimer's for those uh, that have just started to show signs of dementia. So uh, I'll be posting that uh, this weekend. Now, if you're going to be pro se, if you can't afford a lawyer and you're going to be pro se, you're going to have to know the laws of people that are pro se in your state. They vary from state to state. And when you find these laws, you're going to have to follow them. Strange as it may seem, and I had the judge in my case tell me this when it started two years ago, she said, you have the right to be pro se, but you're expected to know as much as a lawyer. Now, having somebody say that to you it just knocks you off your feet because how are you expected to know within a day or two days as much as it took three years for a lawyer to go through law school? So it, it's a sick joke that these lawyers have. It's basically they've created a business all for themselves with their own special language called legalese that only they can understand it. And what's interesting is if you get documents from the court in Pennsylvania, they will include a full page of maybe 15 or 20 languages that they have interpreters for. So even though you're a U.S. citizen, if you don't speak English, well, they'll have an interpreter for you, and the county pays for that. So if you're from a foreign country, your state will pay for that interpreter but not for legalese, which you need as a U.S. citizen. So it's one of the sick things that go along with what's going on in the lawyer business. Um, and if you are pro se, uh, go to your law library in the courthouse. Every courthouse has a law library, and those people basically know all the books. They know where to find things, cases, and so forth. And I often find lawyers in those law libraries, so even they don't know what's going on, that they have to look things up. Um, and it's a lot of people are fooled if they think a law firm that has four or five partners in the title, they think that's the better law firm to go to. And that's not true, because those law firms who have maybe three or four partners those lawyers that work for them, they're no better than the average lawyer. They are hired to kick back money to those partners. And if they don't provide so many billing hours each month, they're fired. So don't be fooled by a law firm that's got a large uh, 
you know, firm, they're no smarter than maybe that single lawyer that may work harder and cost you less money just because he spends more time to your case. So that's something you should keep in mind. Uh, now, I had no idea that there was. I had no idea that there was a library in the courthouse. This has been some great information. Thank you. Um, it's it's important to utilize what you have available, especially if you're pro se, because unfortunately, in my estimation, maybe only one percent of the people that fight the guardianships. Only about 1% ever get their loved person home. And unfortunately, I've been fighting for two years now trying to get my loved person home. And when you have lawyers or even court assigned to the person, they will stab them in the back because they want them to be guardianized. Uh, the lawyer for my yeah. loved person, uh, David Jaskowiak from Jenkintown, he never called anybody in that my loved person dealt with, tax attorney, investors, medical doctors. He didn't call anybody into court and even refused to have this person in court to testify on their own behalf. So basically, here you have a lawyer that is governed by the rules and ethics of lawyers, and they stab, he stabbed this person in the back by not having anybody to protect the person from being guardianized. And in every state, in every state, there is a section, rule, a book, whatever, of rules and ethics for lawyers. Look that up in your state, because if your lawyer is screwing you around, look it up in the book. And if the lawyer is not helping your loved person, then they are violating the rules and ethics of being a lawyer. And a lawyer's obligation is to his client. People must remember that. If a lawyer is not doing what his client wants, then he must quit the case. He cannot simply uh, stay on just for the money part of it. So it's important to realize that a lawyer must do what the client wants, even if it's the incapacitated person. They have to do what that person wants. And Pennsylvania... There is a statute for that, which unfortunately I did not bring that piece of paper to my desk. That's right. But yes, go ahead. I have a quick I have a quick pro se thing, and then we then let's get to our guest. Um, we are hoping to get a guest. We're working on it right now. It's a computer scientist, and pro se people are going to AI. There's like a it's oh chat. What is it called? Chat GP or something. Anyway, we're hoping to be able to bring some more information about when you are going pro se, can you go on the Internet and have the AI help you with this. So that is going to be your homework assignment, Reverend Ralph. Go look up this AI stuff and if that can actually help with going pro se and if you can get some interesting tidbits off this AI or this artificial intelligence stuff. But, hey, we are going to get excited about introducing Lisa and Maurice from Michigan, and I am so excited, and I we have had this show planned for about, I don't know, five or six weeks now, and I'm so excited to have them coming on and to hear 
about what's going on in Michigan and to hear Maurice's story. And this is going to be a little bit different than guardianship, but it's still very pertinent as far as people's rights and as we as we grow older and how we live. So, Lisa, would you please give us a little intro about what we're going to be talking about, so everyone will understand where you're, where we're coming from and what these new law what these laws are that have affected Maurice. Okay, I sure will. And, you know, I did talk to Marty in, I believe it was December, and um, we we had planned on coming on with Marty, and um, I had yeah. spoken to her personally. What a wonderful person she re- really, truly was, and, and we yeah, all just really miss her. And I just, I'm really grateful to you, Kaz, that you have, have stepped up to the plate, and, uh, and Reverend Ralph, and uh, that you both have carried on what she uh, was fighting for because she she was a fierce fighter and it, it will take a lot of people to fill her shoes but um i oh, yeah. i just loved her and uh i i really do miss her but i i just wanted to tell you a little bit about me and maurice and um well my dad left before i was born and i lived with my young mother and siblings with my grandparents in the in their home so in 1962, um, my grandparents, they were extraordinary people because in 1949, before I was ever thought of, they gave birth to a set of twins, and the babies were premature, and the only choice given at the time was to put them in the incubator to save their lives, but the doctors were not sure about the amount of oxygen they would require, so um, they had no knowledge they cover their eyes and like they do today. And both of the identical twin boys lost their sight and were mentally compromised because of the oxygen exposure. So this happened to many children in the late 40s and early 50s because it was a real experimental stage for the incubators. But my grandparents were told by the doctors that the children would never learn, they would never walk or talk, and the doctor suggested that the twins be put in the psychiatric institution. And if that would have happened, the twins would have indeed never learned anything because it was it was quite acceptable in that era for people, if they were deformed or disabled, for children to be institutionalized or hidden away in a home up up in an upper room or someplace where people couldn't see them. And my, my grandparents must have felt as if they, they really were going against the grain. But they took the twins home and became everything to their boys. And the birth certificate mm-hmm. on the twins um, both say that they're blind and retarded. And my grandparents taught themselves how to read Braille so they could teach them. And they also had a two-year-old son and 11-year-old daughter at the time, which was my mother. And my mom often says that that's when she lost her childhood is when the twins came along because she was always like a second mom to the twins. And my grandparents did not believe in lawsuits. And I don't even know if they knew anything about class action lawsuits and they might not have understood what was coming, but my grandfather worked several jobs and he put money away for the twins. He worked at Pontiac Motors and as a carpenter and he worked at Detroit Brooch and anything he could do to earn money so he could make sure that the boys were going to be taken care of. And when it came, when, when I came into the world, um, Morris and Maurice were 13 years old 
and I knew them as M&M, and my sister used to call them B and a B. <laughs> but they uh-huh. they would crawl around on the floor, and we would ride them as horses, you know. And they, and I had two older sisters, so we had you know three little girls waiting for pony rides, and we only had two blind uncles. So we were always just sorry that they weren't triplets, you know, because we always needed another horse when they were little. <laughs> But we grew up together. You know, we all went to church together, and I am so grateful for my my family's church that we belong to and the faith in God that we were taught. And I still talk to people that that went to church with us and know Morse and Maurice really well. And um, but my grandparents both passed away at young ages before they were fifty, and the twins wow. were orphaned by the time they were twenty one. So. My grandfather oh. had built a house in Rochester. He built their own house for them. So they would they knew everything about it was built just for them. So they had everything that they needed in their house. And he had a sizable trust fund set aside for the twins too. And my my grandparents never got help from the government. There weren't any special programs. Um the government never even acknowledged that this kind of event even happened. So everyone just took care of themselves. They, they, they probably didn't realize that the mental institutions um, across the country began closing in the 1960s because they never planned on their sons ever dealing with that, you know. But my yeah. grandparents took care of their own. And, and when the School for the Blind in Lansing couldn't offer anything because the boys were mentally compromised, and not just blind, they were ejected from the school for the blind. But my grandparents were fortunate, and they found a teacher, Virginia Carhart, and she had lost her sight as a young adult, and her passion was teaching. So the Board of Michigan would not allow her to continue to teach, so she opened her home and became a private teacher, and all of her students were babies from the incubators. So I don't know where Morrison Reese would be without her. You know, she devoted her life to children of the incubators, and Morse and Maurice had many friends that were blind just like them, and everyone had their own level of damage, but they were all the same. As far as they were concerned, they were all just, you know, they were all just a group of children, and Mrs. Carhart treated them all the same, and they were all treated like children, not like deformities uh-huh. or rejects. She was so good to them. And uh, she was blind, and she had them live at her home with her. She was amazing. But they had, you know, friends, June and Trudy and Penny, and their families would come, and they played the accordions, and some played the piano, and Mrs. Carhart's family would all be there. They would have these glorious parties and all. And after my grandmother passed, my grandpa remarried by a woman by the name of Mary. And... My grandfather passed without updating his will and left the trustee in full control of the state. So both Morse and Maurice, they fought and they got their GEDs when they were in their 30s to prove to the world that they were not retarded because Mrs. Carhart Uh encouraged them to do that. And that was the medical term then was retarded. You know, now it's it's, um, offensive to say that, but that's what is on their birth certificate. So um, as long as my grandparents were alive, the twins were never on medication. They had no knowledge of anything but a great home life. And we lived down the road from them, and they studied religion and all types 
of uh, different religions their whole lives, and they lived alone in their own apartments sometimes, and they rented houses. But those homes were not their home. Their home got sold so by the trustee, and, and their trust disappeared. And uh, they were just surrounded by takers, you know, and they lived alone, but they had problems mm-hmm. because – people would actually come and camp out in their yard and, you know, one person carried their stereo system out the front door, came to visit them and stole it right out from under them because they're blind, you know, so they had their stereo system tucked under their arm when they left and the the guys didn't know until after they had left, but it's, yeah, it's very hard, but um, the woman that was in charge of Morrison Marie's started getting them introduced to psychiatric drugs in their 20s. And the trustee often acted as if they, he was saving Morrison Maurice from getting robbed by their siblings, you know, the ones that were really trying to do something and help. And there were times that the twins were admitted into Pontiac State Hospital in Clinton Valley for treatment for short periods of time. They were living a rough life. They were out on their own. They were orphaned. Their brother and sister were trying, you know, to help. There was not a lot that could be done at that point. But after the trust fund was blown and and their house was sold in a short matter of time, they were both introduced to foster care in the 1980s. And I am glazing over so much important information, but the twins started out in a group home with quite a few people in, in around Pontiac area, and it was owned by an elderly woman, and the home was a lot different on the outside than it was the inside. Maurice, do you want to tell us a little bit about that home? That home was abusive. Uh, that home was not fair to the clients. Uh, Tell them what they did about dressing you up. So. They dressed me up for Christmas, put a suit and tie on me, so they only would get more money by being, uh, you know, show good people. Like, they weren't thinking about the people. Yeah, you know? she would have you dress up, so so you you they could show showcase you and what a great home you were in. But then when everybody was gone. So, but the twins were nearby, so they Mm -hmm. still came for holidays to my mom's and Gary's, and everybody was included in family functions, started getting bullied by other clients in that home, and so they were moved over 200 miles away from family, and everyone's hands were tied and watched helplessly, and they were moved to Mayo, Michigan, where one of the owner's relatives was starting a small group home. And in the beginning, it was a small farmhouse, and Morris and Maurice really liked it because they were living with a family. And it wasn't perfect, but they were much happier than they were at the last place that they were at. So, But during the 90s, Morris and Maurice were living far away, and the owners were raking in the cash because soon they expanded the facility that held 12 people. And... Um, that was totally separated from the farmhouse. So now there was a metal door separated from the clients, from the owners. And this is where they were warehoused for a long time. And they were on melaril and tropanil and lithium and drugs that would knock an elephant out. They just slept all day long. And they had no psychiatrist for over three years in 1999. And Morse was very thin, and he was obviously shaking. 
and uh, they complained about getting medications discontinued by the owner of the AFC. He was actually conducting experiments to see um, what would happen because the owner stated that they were mind drugs and that mind drugs don't affect your body. That's what he would tell Morrison Maurice. And the twins knew uh-huh. that wasn't true. I mean, they're educated. They're smart enough to know that these drugs were hurting them. And Maurice had requested to see a psychiatrist. It's all written down. I Talk about documentation. I have the documentation of all of this. And and it was all written down in black and white in the state side. And Maurice said that he saw only one psychiatrist in 10 years that he lived there because a general practitioner was actually prescribing them medicine. So there were 12 people locked in a space with very little supervision, and there was a four-person septic system. So um, the one of the main oh. rules was don't flush the toilet unless you go number two because they didn't even have a septic system that that was compatible to take care of this 12-unit person. Who would even let somebody build that in a city to begin with, you know? Exactly. So Morrison Maurice... Yeah, they got one bath a week on Saturdays, and they spent their spending money on an eight-pack of Mountain Dew, which they got one every Saturday after their bath. They would get one bottle of Mountain Dew, and that's all the treats they got. That was it. The rest of the time, they slept, and they were not allowed to use the phone, and they were isolated, and the owner would call them. He would call the tenants pigs. And he pushed Morse around and was very mean sometimes to the other people. And my husband and I moved them into our house after a Christmas visit in 1999. And we called recipients' rights and Laura. I, I called everybody. I had every agency. And the state did a full investigation and had found all types of evidence that we weren't even not even aware of. And the state sent people to speak to Morse and Maurice, and they told him there was going to be a trial. And all of a sudden, after oh. the move, the state dropped all interest in helping Morse and Maurice. The state paid me $116 a month, each twin, for 24-hour care, $116 for 24-hour care. And my husband and I took them to the hospitals, and we got them. Um, we had to get them off these medications, and they went through withdrawals like heroin addicts. And Morse was, oh. of course, diagnosed with Parkinson's at that point. And we we just had the hardest time. Trying, I had them for a year, and um, the state, the state actually put their income with our household income, and they even threatened to to cut their services because then they said they were making too much money with with our company. Um, they they just added it all as one household, and it was a lot different back then. Now now things are a little bit better in that aspect, but it wasn't back then. And so how how am I going to manage taking care of two people and not working and they need 24-hour, and it wasn't just 24-hour care. They needed to be in hospitals and detox, and it was all, they went through so much back then, and the twins went through withdrawals. I'm, it was so horrible. And then meanwhile in Michigan, in 1991, John Engler was elected for a Republican governor in Michigan, and he was born in 1948, which is a year before Morse and Maurice. 
So he obviously didn't suffer from any difficulties like my uncles did, but he easily could have been one of the people that were put in the incubator at that time, you know, and and he never even considered it. So in 1997, the former Michigan governor, Engler, he closed more than a dozen psychiatric hospitals in Michigan. And in his view, to shift treatment back to the community, that was his intention. So I do remember at the state hospital a woman by the name of Nadine Bourgeois, and she was she was an elderly woman, and she had this petition, and she was begging everybody to sign this petition because she said once they close these hospitals, it's going to be so bad. It's going to be such a domino effect in Michigan, and we are going to be so sorry that these hospitals are closed. And I was young, but I was smart enough to sign that petition, you know, because I knew that yeah. this was going to change the inter- industry for mental health and into private homes into your subdivision now, you know. So they they just, if if we can't keep track of the patients in the hospitals, how are we going to keep track of patients strewed all over through neighborhoods and all just clumped together like that, you know. But yeah. ironically, on November 13th in 1994, our past governor, John Engler, and his wife, they gave birth to a set of triplets. So I am assuming that these three girls were put in the incubators when they were born at such a low birth rate. And I do remember writing a letter to John Engler, and I asked him if he was aware that the people that he's slamming the most are people that were in the incubators that made it possible for his daughters to have their sight in their mind, you know. My uncles never yeah. signed up for for this, you know, but because of people like them and people will say, well, did they serve their country? Um, well, not in the Army, but they did serve their country because if it wasn't for people like them who were blinded, we would not have a lot of healthy individual people from the incubators today, you know. So yeah. I just I remember writing the letter to Governor Engler saying, you know, your three children are okay because of people like my uncle that did, that were the sacrifice, you know. And people have a really hard time in our country thinking that these things happen, that babies were actually used for experimental reasons and purposes, you know. So yeah. um, now, now his daughters get to keep their vision and their minds because – of people like my uncle, and and uh, the the damage is already done for them, and now that man is the worst enemy for people with mental illness. And I remember driving through Pontiac, and I went by the Clinton Valley and the state hospitals. I remember the confused mentally ill people surrounding that hospital after it was closed, and the hospital was not perfect by all means, but it was the only place that a lot of people had to turn to. So now it was closed, and now people were just wandering around the hospitals aimlessly. And um, um, where are these people going to end up? You know, I remember thinking, who is going to take care of these people? What if they don't have family? You know, what if they don't have a big mouth niece like me that drops down all the documentation and takes pictures? Because <laughs> Reverend yeah. Ralph, I do take documentation. <laughs> Unlike other people, (laughs) I always make sure to document myself. 
That's so awesome. So, I um, tell you, so I know where I know where a lot of them end up, and I too, as we've talked, and I've talked on the show before, I have a special needs brother, and my mom was really um, a big advocate about it. And if you don't have the kind of money to take care of your special needs child when you grow old, and if something happens to you and there's no one to help, fifty percent of the people who are homeless in this country are coming from these sorts of situations. There are a lot of That's them right. are, are special needs. They are, and I mean, this is just such a close hit to me home topic. Fifty percent of the people who are homeless special needs and people yep. don't realize that they think and they oh, end up drugs, in the jail system a... too the the, yes. the the fortunate ones are homeless the other ones end up in the jail system and you know when foster care homes start popping up all over um the umbrella name mental illness can be used for so many different instances you know some people are born with mental illness and some people are created through science like Morrison Maurice for mental illness and some people get schizophrenia in their 20s, and some women, you know, get mentally ill because they've lost a child. And some elderly people get dementia, which can also be considered mentally ill. So mental illness yeah. is this big umbrella of so many different circumstances. So, yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you're saying. And, and who knows where they end up, but the... The biggest problem I see is that they're all clumped together under the same umbrella. And when a person becomes violent and that person um, may, may, it can be because of bad medications, misdiagnosis, who knows what happens to that person, but they often end up in jail. And jail is a mentally ill, it's the worst nightmare for because now they become subject for inmates to be abusive too. And so they get abused. Yeah. And, and some of these mentally ill people are, are just evil and they need to be kept away from the popula- population, which is what the hospitals did. Uh, until that person was better or until that person could function in life, they would keep them away. But now... The, the mental hospitals, um, they, they aren't just a place, you know, for, for people that are all good and vulnerable and innocent. They, they would keep people away from each other that, that were going to harm somebody else. So they kept them away from the innocent and the vulnerable. So when a violent mentally ill person gets put into a foster care home, there are many mentally ill, disabled people living in that home who will now be victim to the violence, you know? So, yeah. And, uh, yes. So that's uh, in, in November of 2007, after a long battle with Parkinson's disease, we lost Morse. And Morse, oh. or Maurice lost his twin, which is, you know, half of him. He lost half of himself because they were always together. They did everything, and they shared the same mental illness, and they shared the same blindness. So they they were so close and so tight. They they were actually like one person together, you know. They they were just yeah. unbelievably identical twin close, closer than any. They shared a bedroom for the first 50 years of their life, and Morse was gone at 58, mm-hmm. And um, I believe uh-huh. the medications, it was the medications from the 80s and the 90s that was the result of Morse passing in such a horrific manner 
So to see a, a blind person, it was the hardest thing to witness to watch a blind person with Parkinson's disease trying to get through a meal and shaking. And and when Maurice, when he lost Morris, he, he lost so much more than anybody could ever imagine. But the, the foster care owners, you know, they're not always good people either. And I know of one, and I know of one that was in prison for murder, homicide, and got released in 2010, and he ended up running three legal foster care homes and one illegal, and Maurice lived in the illegal one. And and I called Laura just recently because I asked him, do you want to know how this happened so it didn't, it don't happen again? And Laura says, this is not even possible, and they hung up the phone in my ear the last time I, I tried even calling them because – it's all public information. You know, if I can find out, yeah. then anyone can find out. I always thought that they were looking at the people in charge of these homes. So not only do we have people from the prisons going into the foster care home to live, now people own the homes that have come out of prison for murder, homicide, and they're in charge of four homes and probably 20 people who are all mentally ill. You know, and these homes were closed but not before violent abuse happened to Maurice. And and he called recipients right repeatedly, and recipients right sent people to the home, and the staff would answer the door and say everything is fine, and they sent the help away, and Maurice was in the bedroom, and he could hear, but they wouldn't hand him the phone. So if you're blind and you're in a bedroom and nobody lets you out of the room and nobody gives you a phone, how are you supposed to call for help? And in the end, the staff, they weren't paid. And then all of a sudden, they all started telling the truth. But then it was too late because they already saw the abuse. They already knew what happened, but they sat quietly and let it happen until they were victim to these bad owners and they didn't get paid. But the the damage had already happened, and Maurice had already suffered abuses at 69 years old that I would have never suspected my uncle ever go through. And and the owners of the home that that was shut down in September of uh, 2019, they put padlocks on the door after they were shut down, and nobody was allowed to get their personal belongings. Every, all of the all of the people that were abused and victims, they had 24 hours to leave the home. So everybody was scrambling to find new foster cares, and there was four homes. So there was a lot of people that needed to find a bed now. So they were just sticking anybody in any bed. And I, I brought Maurice home with me. I, I didn't let him go with the same people, you know. But even even Maurice's brother's ashes were in that home. I went on the news twice to get those doors unlocked so people could get their personal belongings because they wow. couldn't even get there. And they, the, you know, abuse and Laura and all of them, they, they kept saying, well, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. And it's like, so they abused them and then they kept their stuff. And, and when Maurice got his stuff back, he got, he's a chaplain after his brother died and I gave him this beautiful wallet with a, a cross on it. That was not there. His new slippers, his winter coat. They kept his stuff. 
And they did, he got back, He they had his birth certificate. I'll never know how they got his birth certificate. But they had his birth certificate. They had all of his information for six weeks. And I had my uncle, I was trying to get help for him. I had no cards, no identification. I had no means because the foster care home requires you to give all that stuff. So you should always get you should always get two cards. Say you lost it and have another one on hand, you know, in case if you ever have, because that's, it's really hard when you get somebody back and you have no way to prove who that person is whatsoever. It's just very impossible. Yeah. And so I kept him at my house that time too for, for a couple of months and, and uh, we got him into another home and then COVID hit. And right before COVID hit, he told me the worst abuse that I could ever imagine that he went through. And I went and I reported it. I reported it to Adult Protective Services. I reported it to the program TTI that he was in. And I went to the administration face-to-face and looked them in the eyes. I watched them punch it into the computer. And they said, this is going to, you know, we are going to tell about this. This is going, and I, to this day, they have still never acknowledged the abuse in 2018 that Maurice went through. And they're like, well, what date did it happen? Um, how, how would he know who it was if he's blind? How would he know who molested him if he's blind? You know, what a question to ask. Of course he knows who it was, you know. And yeah. it's somebody that lives in the home, and he knows their voice, and he can tell whoever come, walks into the room. It was just, it was so sad. And, and at the end, I was like, okay, let's, let's say he's just making it up. You know, wouldn't he need some kind of help, some kind of special psychologist to talk to or somebody, you know, let's, let's say he made it up let's let's go with your story and say it never happened but wouldn't he need somebody you know and they won't let him talk to anybody about it because if he talks to somebody about it then it has to be acknowledged and they have skated from that since 2018 and I have screamed about that I'm I'm just so angry that anything like that would ever happen to an elderly blind man you know and and uh when this home was uh, was shut down, um, they, they, before when I got him out, it, the conditions were so deplorable. They were just so bad. So you know now, now you have in the the um, now now you have people out there that are as good as gold, and they're innocent. They're innocent, good people that came from good homes, like Maurice you know, who has gone through great loss. He's lost his parents. He's lost his brother. And now he's stuck in another foster care home during COVID and not taken to a doctor for 18 months. No one was allowed into that home. I was not allowed to go in. I did sneak in there a couple of times because there would be nobody there. The staff would be gone. So I would go and sneak in, and I I found him sleeping on mattress pads and stuff, and I went and found sheets and put sheets on his bed and told them, you know, he he had good clothes. Where his good clothes goes, I don't know. I saw a button on all of his clothes. They just, you know, they they just disappear. And then, you know, one day... Um, you get somebody from Jackson Prison that moves into the foster care home, and now the innocent people are vulnerable. And I'll tell you what they take. They take cords. 
They take hats and glasses. They take anything they want out of Maurice's room because he cannot see them standing there taking his stuff. And, and you know, these homes, they had games. You know, not only were people molested, but they were they were punched in the face repeatedly. And there were different people that I met later. Two years later, I found out that there was three different people that was all calling recipients rights. And we were all telling them the same story. We all had sexual abuse, um, deprivation, you know, food and not getting food. All the same, the same complaints, and every one of us were marked as unsubstantiated, and the same person at Recipients' Rights was getting complaints from everybody, and they just totally ignored all of it because in a foster care home, you're only known as your initials. I would be known as LC. I wouldn't even be known as Lisa. I'm the letter L and the letter C. So when you go to visit and you know other people, you don't know their last name. You don't know how to contact people. They make sure, and they say it's for the protection of the consumer, but it's actually for the protection of the home and for the state because how can people get together and speak together loudly if they don't even know who the next person is? And then you, I, I was so disheartened when I found out that other people had been, you know, and and even recently, he, you know, he was in a really good home. Things were going good. They had one manager who quit, like, within a month, and then the next manager was there for a year. And then she quit, and another manager came, and now they're on manager number four. In 15 months, they've had four managers. And oh. it's very hard. It's very hard when, when they go through, you know, and then there's there's somebody in the home that's a bully that probably don't even belong in foster care, um, somebody that's violent, you know. And this guy, he he got mad at Maurice, and he wrote to me. He wrote me a text, and it said, your uncle is an obnoxious a-hole, and if he don't stop it, he's going to have to leave. Because this client believes that he is running the home and he can make it or break it. He can make people leave, and he can. That's why Maurice isn't living there right now, because that guy wanted to stay, and he was going to make Maurice his life hell. And he got behind him at the kitchen table, and he put him in a chokehold because Maurice was trying to eat a piece of Italian sausage with no teeth. And he, it was not cut up. And the guy told him to quit being such a baby and just eat his sausage and quit being such a baby. And he was taunting him at the table. Who knows where the staff member was at that point? And and the guy really doesn't speak very good English anyways, not cutting down, but he it's hard to even communicate with him because he's he's from a whole different country and it's hard to understand him. But this guy got behind him behind Maurice, this other, this bully, uh, another consumer, and he got behind Maurice and put him in a chokehold while he was sitting at the table with food in his mouth. And he could have broken his neck. He could have choked him. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know what happened, but the guy called me, and I heard the altercation on the phone, and I know there was no staff member around. And, you know, I, I'm telling Maurice, you know, yell for the staff member, and he was. He was yelling the name, help, the staff member didn't come, you know. And 
and Maurice was so upset and I was I was out of town. I was like I was two hours away and I couldn't just be there oh and I didn't the the new manager, I didn't have her number. So the next morning, um I made sure everything got settled down and I talked to him in his room until he went to sleep. He got his medications and he had the phone and I talked to him for probably two hours that night until I knew everything was okay and it was all solved and he could go to sleep. And the next morning I went to the home and the owners were there and they had brought a coffee maker because this bully had told everybody that morning that nobody could have coffee because it was his coffee maker. And so he had been taunting Maurice all day long and, and, you know, I told the owner, I said, you know, something has got to change with this. And, the, and this was in April. And the owner told me, well, this guy is moving out. This bully is going to go on his way. He's getting an apartment. He's going to get a job. He's moving out. You know, I was really hoping that the home could get a decent manager and Maurice would be able to stay because it's so hard for Maurice to learn a new house and learn a new layout. And it's yeah. very hard for him after a year of being in one place to move to another place, and he has moved and moved and moved again. They actually, the state of Michigan actually put him, almost two years ago, they put him in a halfway house in Detroit because there was no place for him. And right now, there's no place for him in the state of Michigan. That's why I have him with me, because there there is absolutely no place for him. So he's either got to stay there and get bullied and get get you know knocked around or else he's got to have a place to go and I'm going to be that place to go because I don't want to see him go through anymore he's gone through so much and the, the home was decent with the right manager but once they you know once you change your manager and you you change positions it's it's just so hard to uh get anybody to to uh and and then you know I really have to hold back and not say too much because it's just like an abused child. You cannot take an abused child in and, and tell, you know, tell on your parents and then, and then keep them at that place. If you're going to say something, you better be ready to pull your loved one out because they yeah. are going to get tormented. So there's that, you know, it's not like you can just, it's, it's a slippery slope. So he was waiting to go to a day program a couple days a week. And it was on his plan that he was going to go visit his friend, Trudy, that lived 10 minutes away, you know, but that stuff never happened for him, even though it was on his plan, even though it kept coming around and around and around. So we're just, you know, we've gone through yet another horrible situation, you know, and so you know, this is why no one wants a home, a foster care home in their subdivision, because it's turned foster care into such a bad name, because now you have these criminals that are blended in with people who who were born, you know, with mental disabilities, and, and Maurice has a certain amount of disabilities, but they have him so mislabeled at, at what... Even the the last interview we were on, all she wanted to do was talk about, you know, have you ever tried to commit suicide? Have you ever, you know, by the time they're done asking all their questions, you have somebody that is just so broken down, you know. It says here that you tore something off a bathroom wall. Yeah, the bully wouldn't let him use the bathroom. His bathroom was busted, and the bully said, this is my bathroom, and you can't use it. 
So then they got this new fourth manager in there, and the manager and the bully told Maurice that he cannot use the bathroom in the hallway. He can only use the other bathroom, which, you know, he pays rent there. Yeah, <laughs> and when the when the manager is siding with the bully, and then the owners also, you know, they say, well, if you don't like it, you know, you don't need thirty days to get him out. Get him out now, you know, because they're laughing because they don't think he's got got any. They know he doesn't have any place to go, you know, because we have to find a house that's compatible for somebody that's seventy three and blind, you know. And he can go up and down stairs. He can use the bathroom by himself. He's a very intelligent person. He doesn't need, you know, he doesn't need to to be in a wheelchair or in a diaper. I mean, he went to um, skilled for for a skilled nursing home for rehab, and they they put him in a diaper and left him in a wheelchair and blocked him in with a bed tray, and he oh was just God. humiliated. And they said, well, he can't walk. Well, of course he can walk, you know. He can do sprints around oh, wow. uh, around other people. <laughs> you know, he's been educated, and and he knows stuff, and he knows his rights, and he knows the law, and he knows the number of recipients' rights. But if you've got a manager that won't give you the phone because they don't want you to call recipients' rights, and he said he was discouraged from, I, I don't even know what that means, but... I just got him back two weeks ago. I got him to my house, and his cholesterol level was checked, like, the day before he left there. And um, his cholesterol level is at 700. It's over 750, and it's supposed to be at 100. And at 700, he's like a walking heart attack waiting to happen if somebody didn't intervene because of the food. You know, and and he's he's uh, susceptible to UTIs. He had somebody. The reason he didn't want to use the toilet in the other room is because somebody would never flush it, and they peed all over the seat. And then he goes in there to sit down on the toilet, and it's quite uncomfortable. And and then he gets yeah. another UTI, and he's in the hospital. And you know, it, you you just have to. You know, and it, it's just a matter of somebody going in there and wiping off the seat after the person, because it, it's not Maurice doing it. It's somebody else. But they don't notice that. Right. But all the staff has been told that because Maurice is blind, he does not get any special treatment. You don't do anything special. So even even when they lead him, there's two of the workers there that they put their two fingers in his back and push him along and and expect him to know which direction to walk to. And then he gets frustrated because he's being led from the back. And everyone knows if you're leading a blind person, you're supposed to be ahead of the person, you know, because there's yeah. blind etiquette, but people don't know what blind etiquette is. So they're not educated on that. And, and they think, well, this is the way I lead him. And it's like people go to school for the blind to learn how to walk, to learn how to, you know, for instance, if you have a, a plate of food in front of him, you can say, you know, your peas are at 3 o'clock and you have mashed potatoes at 6 o'clock. At 9 o'clock you got a piece of bread and then you got some meat at noon, you know. So you can you can always go clockwise, you know, and and describe what, direction they're going and that's always a good way but I guess we just have a lot of young people that are so on digital time they don't know what a clock is 
you know, I I didn't even know all this. This has been so fascinating just to like hear like blind etiquette. One time I did a wedding cake for a blind couple and we sat with the tasting, you know, and I had the chocolate and and everything. And I wish I knew this etiquette because I feel like I could have done a better job for them. But I, I didn't right. know. I feel like this is something that we should all learn in the schools. I just want to I say you to do are a blog. an angel. I wanted you, to do a blog you, with Maurice and, and just because I know, and I did, I had eight pages of instruction when he went to that home. I sit and write down this stuff for the workers. If somebody would sit down and read, like when he takes a shower he wears his shoes into the shower, and then he gets undressed once he's in the shower chair, you know. And then when he comes out, he wears his shoes as well because you always have to have shoes on, you know, because he can't walk in his bare feet because his feet are kind of deformed on the bottom. So um, I'm mm-hmm. always like, you know, you got to wear the shoes. I have all these instructions down on everything, and, you know, um, he can wash himself. You give him the washcloth, and you put a little bit of soap on the rag, and he lathers himself up. But don't hand him a bottle of shampoo or soap because he'll squeeze that sucker, and you won't have any soap left. <laughs> yeah. So that's just uh-huh. how it is, you know. But I, I wrote all these little things, and I, I sew a button on the back of his shirt because the tags are all stamped. So I always sew little buttons on the back of his socks, and that tells you what what clothes are his too, you know. So when he came back oh my um, yeah. to my house, they didn't they didn't bring. I mean, he had four pairs of underwear and six pairs of socks, which he had at least triple that before. You know, half of his clothes were missing, which I expected, but they sent back no razor with an empty razor box and three cords. They sent back his cell phone with no cord. You know, they they didn't send back his blood glucose. They told me this new manager, this is how bad, you know, she wants to follow the rules sometimes. Um, She said his doctor had prescribed Colace for him, but his insurance wouldn't cover it. So the the manager number three brought it to my attention, and I went and bought a big bottle at Sam's of Colace and took it to the home. And so they didn't send that bottle of Colace back. And she and she knew it was his because the new manager, the number four, she she told me she was not going to give it to him because it was not doctor. So she wouldn't even give him Colace to help him with a stool softener. She won't allow uh, eye drops, you know, and she says there's nothing wrong. His eyes were swollen shut when he got here, and I can see his eyes again because um, they were so red. He had he had such redness in his eyes. But I, and it's it's just you know you get a worker like that that thinks they know everything, and it's so hard. And she's like, oh, you don't have to tell me anything because I already know about blood. And then the next thing I know, she was asking me, you know, what is your problem? What is your problem? And then she asked me, you know, do you want to step outside? You know, I'm 60 years old. I'm I'm not going to go leg wrestle somebody in the driveway. You know, in the gravel. I, I, and I shouldn't have to. And she was very aggressive with me. And so I kind of stayed away because I just didn't want to make it any worse for Maurice, you know? So I was just trying to get things ready and I was trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, and, and you just, it's so hard, you know? So I've, I, uh, I actually didn't get paid for work. So I, I did quit my job. 
so I I wasn't working now, so I, I grabbed him because I would have had to have quit my job, though, because, you yeah. know, but then it's hard because then, you know, who who pays my bills? You know, it's, it's just, it's really right. hard if you have to give up and you're not retired because I still need to pay my bills and get through this, you know, and, and my husband has been sick. You know, um, at the beginning of the year, he had foot reconstructive surgery. So, you know, and then I have a disabled child that lives, you know, 40 miles up north of me. So I I have a lot on my plate, you know, and and it's, yes, it's hard. It's very, it's very hard you, to uh, – You are to, just – you are just – you're just an angel, though. Like, my heart, like, I have, like, tears just hearing the story, this beautiful family that Marisa and Morris grew up in, and the teacher that was so amazing, and everything started so good, and then then the tragedy, but you're just taking such good care of him. But you know what? We have a reverend on the line. Reverend Ralph, what do you, what do you think of all this? And put on your collar, because there's something deep here. Well, uh it's it just sounds repetitive whether it's 20 years ago or today the game is still they're just money that's all these people are it's just bank accounts to these people and it's it's so sad to see that uh crime is crime whether you know you read it every day in the paper but it doesn't affect you until it hits you by somebody that you love and care about and the fact that uh in, instead of having a little bit more sympathy and a little bit more concern for those that cannot see or cannot hear or cannot walk. They're basically treated like they're less than human beings. And it's, it's something where it's the same in nursing homes. These people in nursing homes, they are going through the same thing. And it, an interesting point was brought up about, um, you know, they're given one bottle of Mountain Dew a week, and a lot of people don't realize that when people are in nursing homes, the states only give them allowance if they're on Medicaid. They only give them allowance per month, uh, and it barely covers just the necessities like razor blades or something like that. In Pennsylvania, uh, people that are in nursing homes, if they're on Medicaid, they only get $45 a month, a right. month to live off of. And, again, they have to ration soda or ration razor blades or something like that. And this is just – I just can't not understand how these politicians can think that this type of problem cannot be solved or just it's not that important to them. And yet they always use it in their speeches. Oh, we love the elderly and we love this and we love that. It's just a sales talk. But, no, it's – again, uh, the nursing – not the nursing homes, but the uh, institutions from the 60s and 70s, they were deplorable. And Philadelphia had some of the worst ones there were. And, again, it's, it's just how do, you, wait, how do you put it into words? How do you put it into words of what these people are treated as and treated uh, as people? I mean, we have laws about dogs and cats, you know, animal cruelty laws. We have those laws, but the politicians don't think elderly people or people that are special, that have special needs, politicians don't think they should have rights to. It's, you know, back to you, Cos. Well, yeah, you may, we have a caller. They have been waiting for a long time. 
Let's see if they're still on. We're going to go to area code 616. Let's see if we can get them. Area code 616, you're live and on the air. Hello. Area code 616. Hello, area code 616. You're live and on the air. Hi, I'm just calling and um, wanting to let Lisa and Maurice know that they are an inspiration to many people and to keep fighting and to keep doing everything you're doing and to never be quiet. Aw. <laughs> That's that you guys actually you are so inspirational and just hearing Lisa your sacrifice and your determination to make sure that Mars will have the best life that he deserves to have is is just it really is. And there needs to be more people like you out there. And there just there just isn't. Thank you so much. Did you have anything else to offer? Um, no, I'm I'm experiencing my own nightmare within this industry as well here in Michigan. And Lisa oh. and Maurice are a big lifeline for me and I'm just very thankful that our paths have crossed. Oh, thank you so much for calling in and letting us know. Uh, yeah, you guys in Michigan are are really forming a big group, and we're so we're so happy that you all are being involved on our show. And yeah, keep it going in Michigan. It was voted by uh, Marsha of Nazca last week. Voted Michigan the most corrupt state in the country based on her dealings with um, writing policies. So I'm really sorry about wow. you guys there in Michigan. But people like you are going to make a difference. And it's something that someone said to me after my uncle died. And they said, Kaz, stay in the fight and keep and, and don't walk away because someday someone that doesn't even know your name will live in freedom, stayed in the fight. And that goes for all of you there in Michigan. Someday someone who never even knows your name or never even knows the struggles that you went through will live in peace and safety because you kept fighting the fight. And so always remember that when you put yourself out there and it's hard, it's really hard, but just remember that you might not see justice in, in your life, but you are making a difference and it's going to make a difference for someone that will never know. So thank you so much for all you do. I'm going to go ahead and um, mute you back up and we are open. If we have any more callers, just press the number one. And we can take your calls. Oh, we have an international call just came in. Hold on. Hold on. Let's see. Inter- this is exciting. What country do we have? We have an international <laughs> Good call. Good evening, calls. <laughs> it's, it's Chris, Chris from, from Australia. Oh, Good, Marie, Good evening, everyone. We, we have to let Maurice know how excited. Maurice, Chris lives in Australia. She lives in a country on the other side of the planet, and she is so excited to talk to you. Chris, take it away. Thank you for calling in. Hi, Maurice. Hi, Zane. Um, Hi. Oh, look, I've heard your story. It's, it's um, tragic, tragic, and uh, it's still happening here in Australia, unfortunately. Um, foster care, foster care homes. We've now got supported independent living as well, um, yeah, your story ranks so true to many, many victims that we I speak to currently and, and families. So I'm so sorry, and, and I'm sure others are here in Australia, what you've gone through and what you've endured. I just, as I 
I was in a abusive home. I've been in abusive homes, and I think the foster care homes should be shut down. Hmm. Yeah, we agree. Yes, this, they need. I agree. It's, yeah. it's 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 tragic. It's not right how they people need, are being treated. They need a new system. They they need to revamp a whole new system, and and that's for children's foster care as well. And and these children that are are getting taken and put into I can't even imagine what the what the children's foster care is like. I mean, adult foster care is a nightmare. I'm sure children are going through just as bad or worse. And if somebody gets mm-hmm. sad or upset, they give them a pill. You know, Maurice right now yep. is taking pills that cause his cholesterol to go higher. So, and, mm-hmm. and it, it's like they they are eventually going to blow him up if if he doesn't have something change with his diet and his medications, and a pill is not going to help. It's, it's love and caring and programs. Maurice is high-paced. He, he knows all about religion. He's a chaplain. I took him to a chaplaincy class where these people in the church thought they were going to teach this poor blind guy about the Bible. And, you know, Maurice has the Bible memorized, the Apocalypse he has, or the Apocrypha, I'm sorry, the Apocrypha. He has the Maccabees. He has the Lost Book of the Bible. He knows it all. Him and his brother, that's what they have studied their whole life, all religions. He knows more about the Bible than most anybody that I I know, including a lot of ministers. So um, that's that's been his passion in life, and he's just he's just such a a good inspiration to people. He's such a sweetheart, and uh, he he just loves people, and he he's a good guy. And and you know this eventually rubs off on people. Once you get abused over and over and over, it starts you know dealing on your psyche. And Maurice is a very strong person. Just recently, I had him sitting in, and he was laying in the bed. He took the phone in the bed because, you know, the bully was bothering him in the in the living room. Mm. So he took the phone, found his bed, laid down in it, and he was talking. And I could hear that guy sitting next to him, and that guy was talking to him in his ear while I was talking to him on the phone. And I could not stop that guy from talking, but I really wished out I, I could have reached out and touched someone at that point because he was bothering. And he was just sitting there, and and he was aggravating Maurice. He was saying, you know, why don't you like society? Why don't you Why don't you uh-huh. like it when people try to help and you don't appreciate? And he was going on and on, and I could just hear that guy in the background. And I was talking to Maurice, and on the phone I was saying, I said, you aren't listening to anything that idiot is saying, are you? And Maurice goes, no, I'm not listening to him. And we just continued our conversation, and Maurice just totally cut that guy off. And he's got such a power in that that, you know, I would have lost my mind if somebody was in the room doing that to me, you know. And then, yeah. you know, it's it's really hard when you don't – you've got one worker, there's six people – and then the workers are overloaded. They're underpaid most of the time. A lot of workers are very good people. We, he had some of the best workers there, too, or I never would have left him there, you know. He had hmm. people that yeah. he just loved and that's going to really miss right. him from that home. Yeah. So, you know, you got the best of the best and the worst of the worst in the situation. So, 
it's really hard. It's bright. Well, it's very bright. Very bright. Yeah. Yeah. And then, there are really and good people, yeah. too. The it's, themes it's, were interesting. I think being in Australia and listening in, uh, the themes seem to be the same that we're seeing, whether it's adult foster care or young children or the elderly or under guardianship, the same themes that we're seeing, the removal right. and deprivation of rights and liberties, the isolation, the medication, fleecing of money in one way or the other, uh, the imbalance of power that vulnerable people have in these systems. There's just this massive imbalance of power, but there's no transparency. The, again, the same themes, no transparency, no accountability right. for those who are abusing, no consequences, even when they're right. caught out, you know, black and white, it's there, the evidence is there. The same themes in Australia, we're seeing in the US, we're seeing everywhere. And you wonder, is it an accident? Is it by design? What's going on? Because I, the more I see, the more this is turning about willful blindness. It's willful yes. blindness. Yes. And, yeah. and a lot of it's people are becoming very... They have a course called Get Rich Off of Foster Care Homes. I, I yeah. sent it to my, my uncle's brother in Texas, Gary. I sent him a, a copy of it, and he just wrote back. I didn't write anything with it. I just sent it to him. And he, he said, don't you find that a little disturbing? I said, yes. Yeah. So I sent it to you. It was very disturbing that you can get rich. And it's just you get this home and you put all these people in beds and then you can be in Hawaii having a vacation while all these people yeah. are sitting there eating hot dogs and macaroni and cheese with a cholesterol of 750 on a bunch of um, – two years ago – um, Maurice was on 17 different medications, and five of them were psychiatric wow. medications. And, wow. I, and I took him to a hospital. He was sepsis UTI. Um, he was so emaciated. He was so skinny, and he could barely even sit up straight. He was so bad, and he couldn't walk. He, he honestly, after they were done with him, he couldn't walk. And I actually put him in a place that had a gym. And for two months, I paid for assisted living. And I took him to that gym, and I made sure he ate good. And we were like the Rocky workout. And I got him walking again and stuff. And, and they kept saying, you know, he, he, cannot, um, he cannot walk. He needs to be in a wheelchair. So I would sit in the wheelchair and he would push me and we were walking all over the place and they kept saying the wrong person's in the wheelchair. <laughs> and I was like, no, yeah. the right person's in the wheelchair because I was guiding and he was pushing and it you know, wasn't like a walker because I had, you know, he had uh, somebody showing him the way to go. So um, we really had to get back in there. And then he went to a drug rehab and he got re reduced out. Now he's on eight different medications, which is so much better than 17. You know, 17 medications. Wow. He didn't even know what time of day it was. He was so, and he tells me, I don't remember a lot of stuff. I'm like, well, it's probably a good thing, you know. <laughs> My wow. mom was in a rehab one time, and she yeah. was deaf. Her ears were plugged, and I kept telling him, I think her ears are plugged. And they, oh, well, we're going to look at it. And she was only there for a month going through rehab. And then when she got out, I took her to the doctor, and they, they took all this wax out, and she could hear perfectly. And I thought, how mm. many people are in there being considered that they're, they have dementia when all that's wrong with them is they have their ears plugged and they can't hear, yeah. you know? 
And it's the funding. There's wow. a theme of funding. It's interesting you um, th- th- that funding has been raised. I, I was speaking to a gentleman last week, actually. Uh, four of his children have been removed from his care, uh, did not go through a process. And, and, and in the past, I would have questioned. I would have thought, oh, come on, what's happened? What have you done? But now that we know a little bit more about guardianship and the, the balance of probabilities and lack of in, in these hearings, you start to realise, okay, follow follow the money. And he told me, and I have to verify this because I'm not sure, but he told me foster parents in Australia earn over eighty to $100,000 per child. Um, wow. that they that they care for. So my theory has always been if you're throwing money to this system, you're going to attract vultures. Now, foster carers should be paid, good ones. And if you have a system where there are people that I know that they, they don't have parents, they didn't have parents, their parents died, and they had no one to look after them. So, you know, naturally they, 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 they were in, in the system. But and they should be funded and looked after. But there was no transparency. There's no looking in and checking out, okay, how's everything going? And the children, a lot of them that are raised, they they, they don't speak up until they're, you know, older. And it's the damage right. has been done. But in, this, but in this case, he said it's money. He said money yeah. took my, my children were taken away for no reason. He's fighting at the moment with the help of one of our other members. He's fighting the system at the moment because it's not guardianship, but it's sort of similar. Um, and he said, I'm fighting the system at the moment because he said um, money attracted this. This was all about money. This man has purchased, the foster parents have purchased a $2 million home. I have there are eight children there, and he said my children are complaining, but there's no accountability, and that's the, probably the most distressing part. The children, the children haven't got a voice, just like yes, the elderly, just like people, the disabled. We we have yes. to worry about the children because what's happening to to people like Maurice? He's 73 years old. You know, he has lived a, he has lived a horrible past for the last 30 years in foster care. And and what is going to happen to all these autistic children and these children that are taken from their parents and and it is all about money. And in Michigan recently, um they just changed the guardians um in Michigan. They had lawyers piling into the to the courthouses to learn how to be guardians. So you can make all the money in the world, and it was uncapped. You could make as much as you wanted to charge somebody. And now in Michigan, just recently, they have limited it to 80 wards per guardian, which is a big thing because people had 1,000 and 2,000 people, you know, guardians. They they have, you know, all these wards. There's no way they're taking care of any of them, and they don't go and check on them, and they don't do their job. They're just, you know, they're they're getting their cash cows, and they limited the money, so they can no longer take a thousand dollars a week from people if they've got the thousand dollars to give. So Michigan has cracked down on that just recently, which is a, a beginning. It is a beginning, but we need to do so much more. Oh, I think wow. if they remove I the mean, money, is, they need is, to remove the money. 
Mm. I agree. Anita, because don't, don't you agree? If you remove the money, if you cap the money or remove it completely, actually, it is our governments have a duty to protect our human rights. Our governments are not there to run a business. Our governments are there to protect us, to protect the most vulnerable. That is their job. That is why we pay taxes. There should be an automatic default last resort. Right. Uh, system and that's what it should be the minute we turn this system into a cost I don't care if the man, if an, a woman or a man has one dollar or ten million dollars if they can't tap into that money or tap into any other benefits they may get for for example income or will beneficiaries or or you know testing on them for vaccines or whatever they want to do I don't know what they do um, whatever they want to do whatever they want to use them because it's not often money we see as well now we see people being used for other other reasons um, if they cannot infringe on people's human rights and their liberties the, the vultures will leave. The only reason we have vultures in, 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 in traditional sense, it was the natural role of the family and very strong communities that looked after their vulnerable. Um, in, in my, my parents, for instance, they're from Greece, um, immigrated to Australia, and they said it was the community. The village looked after everybody. A child, my, my, um, my, one, of our, uh, one of my aunties, the children were orphaned. The, the neighbours looked after the children until the family was able to step in. It's everyone helps each other, but we don't have right. that anymore. So our government should naturally default and step in, and there should be public accountability, not these secret hearings, not these closed um, inquiries. It should be public. Anyone could walk in and see and tape and listen. When you open the light, when you shine that light on, all of these vultures, all of these predators, all of these individuals targeting the vulnerable, all of these so-called, and we've seen them, there are people that act in a nice and they're nice and friendly and, you know, behind closed doors do what the most atrocious things. Once that is open, okay, and everyone can see in this transparency, it will all, you know, di dissipate. There'll still be abuses, but they'll be minimised to an extent. And that's what we need. What we're seeing now, and I see it in Australia and we see it in, in, in America as well and elsewhere, the, 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 you know the, the the criminals I call them the vultures they have they have control complete control they know they're protected as well so they know this so we are really fighting really fighting from cradle to the grave from our youngest right down to the and it could happen to anyone from our youngest right. to the elderly it can happen to anyone we are in trouble and we need to we really need to bring a transparency and account true transparency not just words not just legislation, you know, tokenism. We need action. Yeah. And now we just we just have four minutes left. I just want to let you know, this has been a really full show, and I apologize to some of these calls are dropping. I did see someone was trying to get through, and then the call dropped. It's just... It's just you're really popular, Maurice. Oh my goodness, we've got a um, we've got a great show planned for next week. We're gonna have Amanda Blackwood, and she actually is a victim of human trafficking, and she's gonna tell her story. But she's also going to talk about how she how she mentally recovered from that. And I feel that that's a message that so many of us need to hear. We're gonna have Reverend Ralph right. back. And always, uh, unfortunately, there's always something corrupt going on in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Um, our shows tonight are brought to you by 
Thank you, Chris, of Australia Association to Stop Guardianship and Administrative Abuse, NASGA, the National Association to Stop Guardianship Abuse, Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit. I know Marcel was listening, and I, I'm hoping that I didn't drop her, but we love Marcel, and she's been very proud of us, what Reverend Ralph and I do. So thank you, Reverend Ralph. And we're also brought to you by Shenanigans in the Montgomery County Facebook page. And Reverend Ralph, do you have a few last minutes of an update to send us on our way? Thank you, Kaz. Uh, I just wanted to confirm, or I should say applaud Chris, because she said it exactly right. The lack of openness and the fact there's no punishment. When people are not open about what they're doing, <clears throat> these nursing homes, and they have signs in my loved person's nursing home that says no pictures are allowed. Pictures are evidence. And when they don't want pictures taken, it's because they're trying to hide something. And again, Chris was right. There's no punishment. I mean, if you speed, you get a ticket. But you can abuse people, you can starve them, you can deny them the happiness they deserve in life, and nothing happens to them. And also, uh, in Pennsylvania, in one of these group homes, I know for each person, the state pays them $100,000 per person in the group home. If money's, if that's not money, I don't know what is. So thanks, Cos. Well, Lisa, you have definitely helped us open a can of worms because $100,000, someone should be getting some really amazing care. Something's wrong. It sounds like there's something wrong across the country. You have been such an amazing guest. You are so popular. I can just see it. Um, Thank you so much, Lisa and Maurice, for coming on. I hope that you will come back because everyone wants to hear about this topic. This has been an eye-opening topic. It's not just guardianship that we need to be reporting on. It's other abuses as well. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a really good night. Thank you, Lisa and Maurice. Thank Thank you, Reverend Ralph. Thank you, Chris. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, Maurice. Good night.